You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. While the kids are making their way out, I just invite you to turn your Bible um, to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there should be one in the pew near you. Go ahead and grab that. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap in front of you. And uh, we'll talk significantly this week about why. Um, if you're using one of the pew Bibles, you'll find 2 Timothy on page 996. Um, that's where we're going to spend our time. Well, it is no secret, no surprise, um, over the last 2,000 years, our world uh, has, has gone through massive and drastic changes. Even over the last couple of hundred years, um, the 1700s came the, the industrial age, this, this revolution in the way that we work and, and radically transformed the way that we live. The mid-20th century, we entered into the information age. And again, change the way that we work, also change the way that we think. The average person now just has casual access to, to more uh, information than generations past could even fathom existed. As the average person, we, we, we've, we've moved, we've changed the way that we see this world. Um, if we look at kind of more of a philosophical perspective, um, the Industrial Revolution was followed, followed by what we call modernism. The rise of, of science and, and, and truth was elevated. Um, belief in God kind of became optional for the first time as things that we could only ever understand as, as miracle or, or mystery were now explained by science. It's an age of trusting in human reason. As the information age came into its own, um, so did a new way of thinking. We called it postmodernism. Because in many ways, it was a rejection of that modern era. Modernism was optimistic, had this view of what we can accomplish together and finding truth and reality. Postmodernism is just intensely individualistic, a little bit pessimistic. Instead of trust and respect in the experts and authorities, postmodernism is marked by, by skepticism, questioning, criticism, suspicion. It pushed beyond science and, and this idea of objective truth and kind of looked more at, at ultimate truth and, and, and the, the meaning of life and these things. Ultimately, it rejects the idea of universal truth altogether. Everything is relative. We're comfortable talking about my truth and your truth, but not the truth. Right now, sociologists are wrestling with what comes next? Are we on the cusp moving into a, a new era? These, these transitions are much easier seen from about 75 to 100 years out. Are we moving into a, a post-truth era, perhaps? But here's the point. Humanity today, certainly the Western world, does not think the way it used to, does not operate the way it used to. We've changed drastically, dramatically. And it affects all of us. We can't escape it. This is just the, the air we breathe, the world we live in. And so as the church, 
trying to reach the people of this world, trying to operate in this kind of postmodern information age, it only makes sense. We have to adapt. We have to change, right? We need to embrace new models, new practices. We, 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 we need to, to, to engage in a way that makes sense in the world that we live in. One of the most obvious things that I think just needs to go simply out of touch, out of date, no longer relevant in our day and age is, is this right here, preaching. It's archaic. It doesn't fit in this worldly system. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect. First of all, you just you can't expect people to listen for five minutes, never mind 50 minutes. They, just, they don't have the attention span. How arrogant and offensive in our culture, in our day and age, not only to assume that there is some objective truth, but then to put yourself up on a platform raised above the average person and declare that truth with some kind of authority. What about my truth? It may have made sense. The first century, the second century, some degree all the way up to the 19th century, but today, it's just out of touch. It doesn't make sense. So it has to be asked, why do we still do this? Why do we continue this archaic practice of these, these long, one-sided proclamations? Why preaching? Why do we do it? Well, there's an answer to that question. And to find that answer, we're going to look at the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, maybe somewhat circular reasoning, we're going to preach about it. Um, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who was a, a young man and a, a church planter in the town of Ephesus. Um, Paul had kind of gotten things off the ground there and then left Timothy to, to lead that church. And, and so this letter is Paul's clear instructions, how to be a pastor, how to lead the church. This is what you need to do, Timothy. And in this letter, we find a pretty clear statement about the practice of preaching. Now, we're going to look at the end of chapter 3 and go right into chapter 4. Don't let that throw you off. Um, the numbers, we just put those in to help us find stuff. Um, often you'll find that there's not a significant break between chapters and verses. Um, hold those loosely. Um, so we're going to start 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and go through to uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Follow along as I read. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, and teaching. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you had given it to us. Thank you, Father, that, that it is for our profit, that it is beneficial to us. Lord, thank you for just the clarity of your command that we might know how to shepherd a church. Lord, help us as we look at these verses to be faithful to your truth. 
to be humble before it. God, I pray that you would be at work as I speak. Lord, if there's anything I have to say that is, that is not rightly reflecting your word, God, that those words would just fall to the ground. They would not be heard. But God, that your truth would be proclaimed and that you'd be glorified in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at these verses, the first thing we see, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, is a clear statement about the nature of the Bible. This is our solid foundation. Why do, we, why do we preach? We preach because we have a solid foundation. Before we understand preaching, we need to understand the Bible. And so that's where we start. What is this book that we hold in our hands, that we rest on our laps? And, and, and here Paul tells us a lot. And the first thing he says is just massive. All scripture is breathed out by God. It is Breathed out by God. That's, that's the most significant thing that you can say. Um, I think everything else important that you could say about Scripture flows out from that truth. We, we could spend days, weeks unpacking the, the implications of, of, of that. Actually, in the Greek, is just one word. That's why we speak about this. We, we often call it God's Word because that's literally what it is. 2 Peter 1.21 gives us a bit of an insight into what Paul is talking about. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so men spoke. It was their words. But as they spoke and as they wrote, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit in, in such a way that, that the end product was, in fact, the very words of God. That's why Peter can say in Acts 1.16, listen, listen to how he phrases this. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. The Holy Spirit spoke. How did he do it? Well, he used David's mouth. And then he references the book of Psalms. Paul makes a similar statement uh, about Isaiah. Acts 28, 25, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Then he goes on to quote from Isaiah 6. The Holy Spirit spoke. How did he do it? He's, he spoke through Isaiah. This is God's word. Not Isaiah's word, and, and, and we see in that some of Isaiah's personality comes through, but it's God's word. And that's true of all Scripture. Paul's telling us all Scripture is breathed out by God. And though God used humans as his tools, the, the final product is God's word. And that truth, as I said, has massive implications all Scripture is breathed out by God, then, then all Scripture is defined by the nature of God, right? My, my words are defined by who I am. If I'm a person who has no authority, then my words have no authority. If I'm a person who, who lies or who, who lacks knowledge, then, then my words are, are not trustworthy or unreliable. Look at the nature and character of God what that tells us about the nature of his word. Job 37, 16, do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? 
God is perfect in knowledge. He knows all things. He is omniscient. Past, present, future, he knows it. All of it, right down to the the hairs in your head and every sparrow that falls to the ground. And further, Hebrews 6, 18 says, plainly, it is impossible for God to lie. He's the God of truth. He cannot lie. So he knows all things. He always tells the truth. Therefore, his word is true and is trustworthy. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. Every word. Two theological terms that are thrown around, sometimes interchangeably. I would just warn people use these words and and sometimes want to give them their own definitions. You kind of have to watch. Um, The first is inerrant. We say that scripture is inerrant. means it is without error. There are no mistakes in God's word. Nothing that is untrue. The other word, I, I think, if we're looking at dictionary definitions, is a little bit stronger. It's the word infallible. Infallible means that, that not only is God's word without error, but it is impossible for it to err. It is unfallible. Um, the Bible is true. And not just in matters of faith, but in, but in everything that it says. If you want to push a little further than that this afternoon, if you're a bit of an intellect and want to read more, I would encourage you to read the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Just Google it. It'll come up. It's not long, but there's a series of affirmations and denials that are very helpful there, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. But the fact that, that all Scripture is breathed out by God leaves us with this as the only possibility. If it's God's Word and God is always truthful, then God's Word is true. Day and age, we are so prone to question everything, to be suspicious and skeptical, to talk as if if truth can never be known. Now, who could ever know the truth? God does, and he wrote us a book, and his book is true. In fact, John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. God's word is true. Not only is it true, though, but getting a little more countercultural, it's authoritative. It is the ultimate authority because God is the ultimate authority. What could be higher than Him? He's the creator of everything that is. He made it, He owns it, it's, it's His. Throughout the Old Testament, he's, he's frequently called El Elyon, which means God Most High. There's no one above Him, no one even comes close. There's there's this categorical difference. God is the creator. Everything else that exists is created. Nothing challenges him. He is the authority. And so people like to take the Bible like a self-help book and kind of pick it apart. And well, I like that verse, but I don't like that one. I think this is true, but maybe not that. And, And we put ourselves in a place of authority over the Bible as if God's word depends on our approval. But this is God's word. It is his authority, full stop. It's not just a a dusty old book, a a hobbled together collection of writings from from snaggletooth shepherds and uneducated fishermen. It is the word of God, breathed out by God. And it is just as true and trustworthy today as it was the day that it was written. 
Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This whole world will be gone and done, and God's word will not have changed. But it gets even better than that. This solid foundation, not only true and authoritative, um, it is profitable. Look at the second part of verse 16. I'll, I'll start at the beginning. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So God has spoken and it's good for us. It has benefit to us. It is his tool. It's profitable for teaching. That means the Bible is the place to go for, for doctrine, for, for truth, for wisdom. It's profitable for reproof and correction. Um, reproof is what confronts us in our error. Uh, correction is what puts us back on the right path. Scripture is profitable for both of those things. And it's profitable for, for training in righteousness. Scripture is useful for, for changing our lives for growing us in righteous living, lives that, that are right before God. The Bible, breathed out by God, is true, is trustworthy, is authoritative, is profitable, and, and then it's sufficient. The Bible's enough. It is what we need. Look at verse 17 and, and follow the logic here. Um, he starts off saying it's, it's profitable for, for teaching, for uh, sorry, um, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the question then is, how profitable, how good, how much does it benefit us? Well, he tells us that is profitable to this end, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what Scripture does. Scripture is able to train us and reprove us and correct us to the point that we are complete, mature in Christ, fully equipped to do everything that God requires of us. His holy word revealed to us has given us everything we need for salvation, for sanctification, leading to, to glorification. We don't need to go elsewhere. This is one of the sharp dividing lines between the Protestant church, which we are a part of, and the Catholic church. The Catholic Church um, says there are two authorities. There are two fountains of truth, the Bible and the church. And by that, they mean the Pope and the historical documents of the church, that those things are on even footing with Scripture. It was one of the first and clearest calls of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. God's word is enough. And this is one of the places here where we find that taught most clearly. If you want to be saved, if you want to grow in Christ, if you want to know the will of God, if you want to live a life that pleases him, you don't need to go other places. You don't need special revelation from God. You don't need other books. You don't need to go to a priest or a pope. You don't need magical stones or tea leaves or any of it. His word is enough to teach, to correct, to train us in righteousness. It's enough to fully equip us for every good work. Now there are secondary things, tools 
under the word, that, that serve the word, that help us understand the word, a good teacher, a good book that, that, that points us to God's word, that helps us grow in God's word. That's great, but it's, but it's under the authority of God's word. This is the solid foundation upon which we stand. Do you see the Bible this way? Do you recognize this book that just far too often sits on the nightstand collecting dust? Do you know the immense value of this thing that we hold in our hands? This is the very word of God for you. Don't fight it. Don't argue with it. Don't don't try to stand in judgment over it. Accept it in, in humility. Trust it. Trust that it is true, that it's trustworthy, that is the very word of God spoken for us. As you're reading through scripture and you read something and you go, I don't know if that's right. I don't really like that. Well, I have this choice to make. Am I going to judge God's word based on what I feel or is God's word going to judge me? And I go, that's something wrong in me. I need to change the way I think about that. I used to think this way, but God's word says I need to come in line with it, not the other way around. Lean on it. It's sufficient. God's word is enough. If you need wisdom or knowledge or hope or peace or guidance, ultimately you'll find what you need in God's word. That's the foundation that we have as we talk about preaching. Flowing out of that foundation then is a serious charge, a serious charge. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul tells Timothy, Scripture is breathed out by God. It's it's profitable. It's sufficient. And and then um, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. If there is a more weighty and solemn charge in all of Scripture, I am not aware of it. That is deadly serious. Paul could not be more over the top in painting this picture, in laying down this solemn charge. The command that he's leading up to is preach the word in verse 2. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, he wants Timothy to grasp the importance of this, how serious this is. It's not actually clear at the beginning if he's calling one witness or two The grammar there, it could actually be read um, in the presence of God, even Jesus Christ. The the two are one. But the implication is powerful. Paul's saying, I am laying this charge. I'm, I'm entrusting you with this duty in the presence of God Almighty. The one who spoke and the world came into existence. The one who flooded the earth, killing every human alive by grace, rescuing only Noah and his family. The one who blessed Abraham and and made one man and his barren wife into a great nation. The one who destroyed Pharaoh and all of Egypt with ten mighty plagues and rescued his people and brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. That God, that God who then revealed himself coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Then he expands. Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing... And by his kingdom. All three of these statements point to the same reality. The second coming of Christ. When he appears. He will appear as judge. And he will bring in his kingdom. Jesus is coming back. 
He came the first time with gentleness and grace. He called all sinners to turn from their sin, to trust in him, to to find in him forgiveness from sin, reconciliation with God, peace with God. And then he gave himself on the cross as the sacrifice to cover that sin for all who would believe. But he also warned that he was going to return, that one day he would come back at a time when no one could predict and no one would expect, and that on that day he would finish what he started. He would complete the the establishment of his glorious kingdom. Now make no mistake, he rules supreme right now, unchallenged, unquestioned in his authority, but in his patience and his grace, he's waiting. He is allowing this world to continue in rebellion against him, to continue to to scoff him and walk away from him, giving time. Time for the, the full number of people to come to repentance, for all of his sheep to be gathered into his fold. And when he returns, he will establish that kingdom in full. He will no longer tolerate this rebellion that has been carrying on for so long. He will reign in peace and joy and happiness, a time of of fulfillment and satisfaction, lasting without challenge and without end. But that kingdom will be, it, it must be, a kingdom without sin, a kingdom without rebellion. And so that kingdom will begin with judgment. It will begin with Jesus sitting on his throne as the judge. Paul says the judge of the living and the dead. And by that he means everyone. Every single person. No one will be excused. No one will be overlooked. You will be judged. We will all be judged by our lives. By our obedience to the perfect law of God. And every one of us, without exception, on those grounds, every one of us will be found guilty. Without question. Worthy of God's wrath. Which is hell and the lake of fire that that burns without end. That's what we deserve. So our only hope on that day is not anything in us, is not to say, well, I tried to do this, God, and I was a better person. I I read my Bible. I went to church that one time. I even put money in the offering. None of that means anything. Our only hope in that courtroom is to say, I'm guilty because God knows it. I deserve your wrath, but Jesus died in my place, and I have put my hope in him. I have trusted in him. He died that I might live. That's why Revelation 20, 15, as it describes the the throne room of God and the court of his judgment on that day, it says this, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life is the record of all of those who have trusted in Christ. If your name is there, you're spared. You're spared from the wrath of God. Jesus took that wrath in my place. He died that I could have life. And they're brought into the kingdom of heaven, into the the kingdom of his son. That's the only way to make it through that judgment. But, But even then, and this is precisely Paul's point to Timothy, even for those who have trusted in Christ, who have had their sins wiped away, cast as far as the east is from the west, there's still a judgment. 
There's still an evaluation of our lives. We will stand before Christ and we will give an account. Not for our sin. Our sin has been, as I said, cast as far as the east is from the west. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we will have to give an account for the life that we lived in response to that grace. Matthew 25, Jesus tells the the parable of the talents. Um, The master went away and he left his servants with different amounts of money. And when he returned to those servants, they were rewarded based on what they had done with that with which they were entrusted. The time, the gifts that were given to them. Right in line with our passage this morning, um, Paul wrote in in 1 Corinthians. um, You may want to turn there. It's too big to put on the screen. 1 Corinthians 3. Starting in verse 10. Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. So he's talking there about the gospel. He's talking there about his apostolic role as as a foundation stone in the church, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. He has laid this foundation, the foundation of the gospel, the foundation that we have in Scripture. And then he goes on to say, And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. The day there, that's the day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through the fire. So Paul has laid the foundation. The apostles have given us God's word, and we're building on that. Not just preachers, but every one of us. We're we're living our lives building on this foundation um, and and building on it either with with gold and silver and precious stones, things that survive trial by fire, things that will result in a reward. Or maybe we're misled. And we're not walking, we're not building rightly on this foundation. We're building with wood, hay, and straw, things that are consumed in the fire, things that will have no eternal reward. And that that we might be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So as believers, are we building rightly on that foundation? Are Are we living our lives for his kingdom, for his glory? Living each day in, in light of his return, because that day uh, it will it will disclose it, it will show the lives that we live. Do we live with a, a conscious recognition that, that even though in our daily lives right now, we're surrounded by the kingdom of this world? And so every pressure and every logic around us is contrary to Christ. This current reality, though, is not ultimate. The, the world and the devil do not win. And, and what we see around us right now is a mirage. It will so soon pass away, it will evaporate before our very eyes. The kingdom of Christ will be ushered in. This applies very pointedly to those who would lead the church. 
those who would take the role of elder, preacher, teacher of God's people. Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, is coming back, is returning in irresistible power to establish his kingdom in full. The stakes could not be any higher. And so what should we do? Here's Paul's command then to Timothy in light of this, in light of this solemn charge. He gives a simple command. Not, not simple in that it's easy, but simple in that it is straightforward and clear. Preach the word. Look at verse 2. 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Take that solid foundation, that, that God-breathed, trustworthy, and true, profitable, sufficient word of God. With your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and the, the hope of his return, the reality of judgment and his coming kingdom, and preach it. Preach it fearlessly. Deliver God's word to God's people no matter what. That's what they need. That is what is required of you, pastor. Let's break this command down a little bit. First, uh, the word preach there, caruso, doesn't mean consider, doesn't mean have a conversation about. That's kind of maybe the, the, the postmodern um, move of preaching instead of a pulpit is to bring up a stool. Let's just sit and talk about these things. Let me just ask some probing questions. No, Paul says proclaim it. Authoritative declaration of truth. And what is it that should be preached? Should be proclaimed for all to hear? The word, scripture, the Bible. That solid foundation. Don't preach self-help. Don't preach personal stories. Don't preach personal revelation. Don't preach worldly wisdom. Preach the word. Acts 20, uh, verse 26 and 27. um, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, declaring the whole counsel of God's word. There's a kind of preaching that we are committed to here at Redemption Church, and and I want to be careful. This is not the only kind of faithful preaching, okay? This is not the only way to preach faithfully. But it is a distinct approach to preaching that we believe is best. An approach that, that best respects the word, that guards against uh, the preacher just following his own passions and whims, that, that keeps him most tied to the word itself. And it's called expository preaching or expositional preaching. Expository preaching is not about style. There's room for all kinds of different personalities and styles within the realm of expository preaching. It's more about the the content of the sermon, or maybe more specifically, the source of the sermon. So Albert Moeller defines it this way. He says, expository preaching is that mode of Christian preaching that takes as its central purpose the presentation and application of the text of the Bible. All other issues and concerns are subordinate to the central task of presenting the biblical text. A little simpler, 
Um, Mark Dever puts it this way. Expositional preaching is preaching in which the main point of the biblical text being considered becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. You see it? It's about who's in the driver's seat. That the main point of the sermon, of the, of the text becomes the main point of the sermon. Not deciding what to preach and then finding a bunch of other Bible passages to support that. Not starting with a Bible passage that's nice and then just kind of launching off and saying a bunch of things that are slightly related. But starting with a passage of Scripture and spending the entirety of the sermon just trying to say what God has already said. Just trying to expose, to make clear what is here. One of the best definitions I've heard, I can't remember for the life of me where I heard it. I would love to uh, reference this. Um, Whoever it was said this, rather than the preacher using the Bible to preach his message, it is the Bible using the preacher to preach its message. And you might listen to a handful of sermons and, and, and take a while to start picking up on, oh, that's it. That's what an expository sermon looks like. Or something just wasn't quite right about that sermon. What, what, oh, that wasn't expository. He wasn't, he wasn't making the main point of the text, the main point of his sermon. He kind of went his own way. It's, it's not always immediately clear. But it's about who's in the driver's seat, the preacher or the word of God. Now, that, that commitment to uh, expository preaching is, is, as I said, a safeguard for me um, th- that I'm not riding my hobby horses, that I'm not just bringing what I think is important or of value, but it's rooted in God's word. And, and that, again, not always, but usually um, plays itself out in what we usually do around here, and that is preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's the easiest way to preach uh, each scripture in its original context because it's really easy to get scripture wrong when you just kind of pull it out of its original environment. Wow. To faithfully preach the whole counsel of God. I mean, he's not just grabbing bits and pieces that we like most or, or avoiding difficult, confusing passages, but just to faithfully work one verse at a time through books of the Bible. And to give um, a faithful picture then as well. Um, not just of individual texts, but to begin to paint the, the broader story of books of the Bible and how they, how they fit together and flow as a whole. Now we do, from time to time, engage in series like the one that we're in. Uh, each sermon is focused on a different topic, but um, you'll notice that, that what I've done is chosen a passage of Scripture that speaks to that topic and preached that text. And there are times where I'm thinking, boy, I really thought it was going to go this way, but God's word is going that way, so that's the way we're going. Why? Because what I think is important is not that important. What God has written is what's important. And we want to follow God's word. And so that's kind of maybe a bit of a hybrid of kind of topical, expositional. Um, but as this, I don't remember the last time we did a kind of topical-like series. I think it's been a couple of years, and when this is over, we're going to go into Ecclesiastes, and then I think probably into Genesis, so that's going to be a while. Um, that's going to be, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, we are commanded to preach the word, and the way that we apply that here, our, our conviction and redemption is, is to safeguard that, holding to what, we, what is called expository preaching and to spend the majority of our time, as I said, working through books of the Bible, um, letting each text simply say what it says, preach the word. Secondly, 
Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season. The word season there um, translates the Greek word kairos, which means a moment in time or, or an opportunity. And Paul uses the, the positive prefix and then a negative prefix. He says, eukairos and akairos. So good opportunities and bad opportunities doesn't matter. Preach the word. Bad opportunities, preaching is looked down on, it's scoffed at, it's rejected, it's discarded and opposed. Preach the word. Good opportunities, people are eager to hear and excited and, and it's favorable. Preach the word. And that could apply to anything from, from kind of day-to-day -day opportunities, talking one-on-one -on -one even, or, or preaching on a weekly basis to, to, to listeners who are, who are hungry to hear or maybe cold and dismissive. Or that could apply to seasons of human history. Preach the word in the pre-modern age, in the modern age, in the post-modern age. Preach the word. It doesn't matter what people think of preaching, how well accepted it is at the time, how in vogue it is, how effective you think it will be, just preach the word. Paul faced this in Corinth um, just two chapters before the passage we read about building on that firm foundation. Um, if you want to turn back again, 1 Corinthians 1, um, starting in verse 20, it's a longer passage than we can put up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 1, um, starting verse 20, Paul says this, Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? He's describing things that were, were popular, were in vogue at the time. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, now follow this, the, the logic is tricky, but it's clear. Follow it along. In the wisdom of God, so God is wise enough that the world did not know God through wisdom. So human wisdom is not the way to get to know God by God's wisdom the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. He goes on to talk about their cultural preferences. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews wanted signs and wonders. Show us something impressive, and then we'll believe you. The Greeks wanted a display of wisdom. Make a, make a powerful, wise, oratory argument. And Paul said, no, I will do neither. We're not going to cater to the culture. We're not about what you want. We will preach Christ crucified. And yes, that was a stumbling block to the Jews. If you were doing market research, as is so often done today, to go into planted church, and you were, what, what is this culture like, and what kinds of things will they respond to? You would not have gone for preaching. Wouldn't have happened. And yes, it's foolishness to the Greeks. Greeks would say, that's ridiculous. It's nonsense. A God who dies, pointless. Doesn't connect with them culturally. But notice there's a third group there. There's the Jews and the Greeks, and then there is those who are called. God's elect from both the Gentiles and the Jews. And for them, for that third group, in the apparent foolishness of preaching, they would meet Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. 
We talk about foolishness. Let's flip one more time uh, over to Ezekiel chapter 37. This is a, a beautiful picture of preaching. I'm just going to flow through this chapter, um, touching on uh, an overview of it in a vision. And God puts Ezekiel in the middle of this dry valley, uh, a valley that is not just filled with dead people, but bones. And not just bones, he says they are dry bones, very dry. These people have been long dead. Like We are not doing CPR. We are way past that. This valley of dry bones. And God asks Ezekiel, verse 3, can these bones live? Ezekiel's like, where's this going? I don't know. God, you know. God says in verse 4, prophesy to them. Preach to these very dry bones. What a ridiculous command. Speak to the bones. What are the bones going to do? Verse 7, Ezekiel opens his mouth. He obeys, he begins to proclaim the word of the Lord and the bones begin to rattle and shake and move together into their places and then they are wrapped in ligaments and muscle and flesh and all of the sudden, verse 10, in front of Ezekiel stands an exceedingly great army, an army not of bones or of skeleton but of living, breathing people. God is saying, that's how I create a people. That's how I bring about my church. I bring the dead to life. You preach, I do the rest. Watch what I will do. It's miraculous. That's the power of God's word preached. In the most hopeless of situations, the proclamation of God's word brings life. So we're called to preach. To preach in season and out of season. And then finally, Paul gives a little bit of detail on what that preaching should look like. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Remember, God's word is profitable. His word is profitable for, for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And so the, the preaching of that word should reprove and rebuke and exhort. True preaching is, is not only expositional, it not only exposes the truth of God's word, um, but it must also be applicational. It applies that truth to our lives. It gives us something to, to walk away with, feeling we, we need to respond. What do I do now? There's some expository preaching that ends up being more like just kind of a running commentary on Scripture. It just gives us the, the cold, hard facts, the, the cultural, historical background, and this is what it means, and this is what it is, and stops there. And it walks away from, from the text with, with what it means, but never gets beyond that, never applying that text to, to here and now. So what do we do? Never gets to reproving, rebuking, exhorting. Hebrews 4.12, many of you will be familiar with, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is not dead truth. It is living, it's active, and, and it's sharp. Sometimes it cuts. Sometimes that hurts. Sometimes it, it pierces the heart. It convicts us of sin. It calls us to righteousness. If we're going to wield that sword well, then good preaching needs to be not only exposing God's word, but applying it to our lives. Don't remove its sharp edges. Let it confront. Let it shape us. Let it form us. 
Sometimes that's negative. Paul commands Timothy, reprove and rebuke. Those are strong words. Correct wrong thinking, correct wrong living. Sometimes it's positive. Exhort means to to encourage, to strengthen, to, to spur on. The goal of preaching is not a mind filled with God's word, but a life that's shaped by it. But all of that must be done in complete patience and teaching. Training in righteousness takes time. Growth doesn't happen all at once. Your, your baby doesn't finish its first bottle and then get up and make you dinner. At least mine didn't. Um, if you know how to make that happen, I'm down. But slowly, bottle after bottle, mashed up food of mush after mashed up meal of mush, eventually into solid foods and one after another after another, imperceptibly in the moment, but over time, there's growth. If you're 30 years old, you have eaten over 32,000 meals in your lifetime. How many of them do you remember? Yeah, Dean, you've had like three times that, buddy. (laughs) I love you. How many of you specifically say, oh, I remember that meal. And, And more specifically, oh, when I ate that meal, I got this muscle right here. I got this much stronger when I ate that meal. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You ate and walked away and your, your body was nourished. And, and though you may have never even seen the, the direct effect of that meal, the accumulation over time is obvious. It's the same with the preaching of God's word. There might be a sermon or two that you remember how it hits you, how it changed you, how it confronted you or convicted you. But, but the vast majority of our growth will not be from one kind of dinger of a sermon, but the accumulative effect of regular nourishment of God's word faithfully preached week after week, year after year. That's why preaching is and always will be a central part of what we do here as we gather. We will not move worship out of the way. It's not an optional piece of our gathering. It's necessary. Because we have this solid foundation of of God's trustworthy, authoritative, profitable, sufficient word. Because we have this serious charge in view of of Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead, who's, who's coming back and bringing in his kingdom. And because we have this simple command to just preach it in season out of season, doesn't matter, preach the word. Now I realize much of that, by way of application, lands on me in the pulpit. How I serve the church in preaching every Sunday, trying to be faithful to this command to preach the word, I would invite you to hold my feet to the fire on that. But it also lands on you in the pew. First and foremost, as you think about what kind of church will I attend? What kind of church will I belong to? Go back to 2 Timothy and look at verse 3 there. Paul sees a, a danger in the future. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That day came Well, pretty much right as soon as Paul wrote this. We like nicer, polished, feel-good messages. I don't want to go to that place where I'm convicted of sin and I'm made to feel uncomfortable and I feel like I need to grow. I want to go to the place where they make me feel good. 
I want to go to the place that says believe in yourself and, and, and you can do anything and just follow your heart. That's the place I want to go. That's great. Yeah, well, it might tickle your itching ears, but Paul says you're leaving behind the truth and wandering off into myths. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. I would say that is the number one thing I want to look for as I'm looking for a church. If you, if you move from here, maybe you're here just visiting, um, and, and maybe you don't land here. We're not the only church that does expository, faithful preaching, but, but look for that above anything else. That's the first check. Are they preaching God's word faithfully? Week after week, Sunday after Sunday. And do you come then every week believing This is God's word for me. Do you see it as his trustworthy, true, authoritative word for your life? This effective and sufficient tool, not only for your salvation, but but for your sanctification, your growth in godliness, that you might be made complete, that you would be equipped for every good work that the Lord has. Church, the word of God The preaching of that word is a precious, precious gift to the church. So valuable. That's the highest honor of my life to be be able and called to this sacred task. And I pray as we come together um, to worship and to hear the word of God preached, we would come eager and expectant, ready to be reproved and rebuked and encouraged, ready to be transformed by his truth for his glory looking forward to his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled before the wonder of your word. God, that it is breathed out by you. And that we have the privilege to open it, to read it, to see your truth, the truth, in plain, clear, black and white, unmoving letters. God, help us to to treat your word as we should with humility and respect to be confronted by it, encouraged by it, transformed by it. God, I pray for this church. Lord, I pray for myself, for the elders, for anyone who would stand on this platform to preach your word. God, that we would be faithful before you to preach your word in season, out of season, to faithfully proclaim what you have written. And God, as we gather, preacher and listener alike, that we would come humble before your word, eager to be confronted, eager to be corrected where we need to be corrected, ready, expecting to be changed by your truth. And God, that, that you would build your church, that you would feed us with your word, Strengthen us as a body, as as individuals walking um, to honor you. God, that you would build um, your beautiful, strong bride here for the glory of your name, we pray.